Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, all explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me, Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cyril of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, for episode number three of The Zero Line, produced and hosted by ResoluteSquare.com. I have a very special guest today. Her background is quite dynamic and encompasses both sides of the Atlantic when it comes to the geopolitical understanding of what's taking place in the Zero Line battle for democracy and freedom around the globe. With me today is Jessica Berlin. Thank you for joining us, Jessica. Pleasure to be here. And we are speaking in Kyiv, a place that you have come to visit uh, several times over the last 524 days since the outbreak of the full-scale invasion and, and Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. Why is it that you have journeyed here on multiple occasions? Well, I've, I've been here now six or seven times in the past year and a bit since the full-scale invasion. And the purpose is to help basically assist in the mobilization of political support for increased weapons aid, humanitarian aid, and financial assistance to Ukrainian forces, governments of Ukraine, and Ukrainian civil society, so that this war can be brought to an end as quickly as possible. That, that's on its most simple terms. It's interesting that you named uh, all three parts of the situ or the folks who are, are going through this war. You mentioned civil society, you mentioned the government, and you mentioned the armed forces of Ukraine. Your background is such that, so the audience understands, it's not a pen name. Your name is Jessica Berlin. You are a foreign policy expert, a political analyst from Berlin, Germany, but you've also lived in the United States. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm from the U.S. and Germany, and I, I live in Berlin now since five or six years. So the thing with my last name is indeed just a coincidence. What's not a coincidence, though, is some would say two of the pillars of this, uh, of the Allied partnership against uh, Russian aggression and support of Ukraine are Germany and the United States. Obviously, Germany plays a tremendously uh, influential role in the European Union, and the U.S. has been one of the leaders uh, among all NATO countries in pushing for Ukraine's victory. What is your background in the political scene and in the foreign policy scene of those two countries? Well, as a German and an American, like you mentioned, I have a, you could say, inborn transatlantic perspective. and. You know, in the early years of my career, I worked uh, amongst amongst others with the U.S. government during the first Obama administration. I was in the Senate uh, at a think tank and then in DOD over the course of two years in Washington. My time in Washington uh, as a young professional, if anything, uh, showed me just how European, we could say, my, my political and uh, worldviews 
are. And so um, after the time in Washington, I worked with the German aid agency in Afghanistan for a couple of years. Uh, it was t- back in 2011, 2012. Um, and prior to the time in Afghanistan and Washington, I was uh, in Rwanda also for about a year and a half, had studied in China, um, you know, large Chinese, uh, and you know, also spent a good deal of time in, in the Middle East. And after my time working with both German and American government organizations and agencies, I basically made the decision to work for myself because um, I was too European for uh, <laughs> the Americans, uh, you could say. And uh, however, um, also have a much more proactive mentality than than what I what I found in the German government. And what we see now in this war is a collision of of these of these two uh you could say weaknesses of, of the German and the American perspective. Um, Let's talk about weakness. So many times as allies, these countries that are at the head of the table when it comes to decision-making, want to only project strength. You've led off with discussing weakness. I find that extremely interesting and can't wait to hear these points. In the post-Cold War supposed uh, post-end-of-history era, this sort of 30-year bubble of the perceived stability that the Western world has, uh, has been functioning in, there, there's a sense that that the days, or there was a sense before this this horrible uh, invasion, that the days of brutal land wars uh, and uh, invasions were behast. That we're all civilized and grown-ups now, and this this sort of thing doesn't happen, and we've got everything under control. This was a fallacy. Dictators and dictatorships is still a balance. Do you believe that dictatorship is something that's a permanent yet opposite reaction to democracies? Are dictatorships something we'll ever be able to rid ourselves of? Um, no, no, that's not really the the point I was making. It was around uh, the Western misunderstanding of what makes dictatorships tick. Uh, the language of violence and power is one that we have forgotten how to speak. And I've lived in a number of dictatorships um, of varying uh, shapes and colors, you could say, uh, shapes and sizes. And the language of aggression and how dictators hold on, gain and maintain power is something that that I think uh, has been misunderstood or forgotten um, were just politely ignored by by the Western uh, foreign policy and security establishments uh, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and this, for example, the, the German notion of Wandel durch Handel, of uh, transformation through trade, that somehow by virtue of doing business with uh, hostile and oppressive violent dictatorships, they'll somehow become more friendly and democratize. Uh, this was a totally fallacy. And why is that? Because think about it from the logic of, of the dictator. W- what incentive are you giving me uh, to reform 
and be less aggressive, less hostile, just because you're making me rich. We just em emboldened and enriched the hostile dictatorships and actually fueled uh, their, their wars and their domestic oppression and put them in a position, you know, let's be very specific now with you know, Russia and China, of course, we have put them in a position to be able to threaten the world order. We have enabled Russia uh, to expand, uh, not only, of course, in, in Georgia, in Moldova, in Ukraine, um, their aggression, but also in Syria, also across the Sahel uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. So this weakness of Western strategy is fundamentally ingrained with a misperception uh, and an and underestimation of what dictators and dictatorships are indeed in the 21st century still capable of. You have a very interesting perspective when it comes to German politics, as you've just described your background, having worked in the German uh, foreign policy realm. Then you explained about uh, trade policy being a way for diplomacy to play out. Is the situation with former Chancellor Schroeder one of just a common way of German thinking, or is there something more nefarious possibly going on between the former chancellor and his relationships with uh, the folks in Russia? Well, the, the corruption uh, and the deep ties between Schröder and his circles uh, and the Kremlin, uh, we've only been scratching the surface. There have been a number of uh, investigative reports in Germany. I don't know to what extent they've been coming out in English. Uh, hopefully, they're being translated um, as we speak, and, and will be will be published in English as well. It's really ugly when you lift the rug um, on on the Schwena years. Uh, but let's not let's not try to eliminate to one personality. You know, this uh, the German dependency on Russian gas was created and maintained over the course of decades spanning both uh, Buddha's time in office um, you know, as SPD chancellor and, of course, um, throughout Angela Merkel's um, time as chancellor uh, from the CDU. So that means the two biggest parties in Germany, the two parties, the only two parties that have ever given a German chancellor have uh, been equally, or, well, I'll not say equally, but jointly complicit uh, and responsible for uh, the German-Russian dependency. And this is also part of why it's been so difficult uh, politically, domestically in Germany to have a proper conversation and to, to have real consequences for the corruption um, and the incompetence, the combination of corruption and incompetence that led to this disaster and helped indeed enable Russia to wage this genocidal war of aggression on Ukraine. And so in order to have a proper reckoning, you would need to have a government uh, who has an interest uh, and is actually committed to getting to the bottom of things, uh, to figuring out who knew what and when and made what decisions based on what information. But because both of the major parties, I mean, the equivalent of the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, from American terms are, are complicit, um, obviously, it would be incredibly damaging to both of them to, uh, for the truth to come out. 
So it will be a long and difficult road to accountability, but without which uh, it will be also very difficult to see uh, a real serious change um, in Germany and a break in the past. I want to point out that certainly Germany has uh, made incredible shifts and changes in, in their foreign policy and security policy in the past year. Um, I don't want to say nothing has happened because that's not true. A great deal has changed. Uh, but when you look at the process of those changes, the fact that before every correct decision coming from the Scholz Chancellery on delivering heavy weapons, on delivering uh, air defense systems, on delivering tanks, we had to go through months of nonsensical, illogical, emotional debates with the, the government saying, basically, we can't escalate, you mustn't upset the Russians. No, no, we couldn't possibly send Ukraine this, that odd capacity or system, which was completely inaccurate. And then finally, after weeks and months of debate and pressure, then they pull a 180 and do deliver the, the weapon systems or the tanks. But in that time of hesitation and indecision and fear, uh, you could even go far, so far as to say uh, ignorance and cowardice in some cases, all in that time, it helped Russia to maintain their war effort and it harmed Ukraine cost Ukrainian lives, and it also damaged the domestic debate in Germany. And I, I think for a lot of everyday folks and voters in Germany, the fact that it took so long for the right calls to be made, the lack of strategic vision in those first uh, six to 12 months of, of the war, um, of the full-scale invasion, let's, made it muddied the waters in a way that it'll still take time to settle. Let's talk about the German electorate. So we have European parliamentary elections coming up in the coming months. Recently, the alternative for Deutschland, AfD, nominated for European parliamentary elections a gentleman who has embraced extremely close ties, very public and vocal ties with Russia without getting into the intricacies of AfD on the domestic standpoint, is politicians and politics within Germany, has it become fashionable to begin to embrace Russia as they're called AFD alternative for Deutschland? Or is this something that they just feel maybe an electoral mechanism for them? Well, the AfD is a right-wing nationalistic xenophobic party that has also been supported by Russia directly. Tell us about uh, that. What do so, you mean by supported by Russia? Uh, financially. Okay. Um, and also, um, so directly financially, as well as through disinformation campaigns, uh, social media, bot troll campaigns, the, the exact sort of thing that uh, Americans saw in uh, the 2016 presidential election, of course, um, as well as in, in the last presidential election, um, what we saw in the Brexit referendum and, and what we've seen, quite frankly, the standard playbook of uh, Russian interference in democratic elections, um, supporting right-wing candidates uh, financially, as well as with uh, media campaigns and attacks on, our, on democratic parties. Germany is, of course, high on their, their list and 
the the AfD, the AfD uh, right wing party, as well as the Linke, the the left wing. That was the party. communist party. Of, uh, it came from communism. Yeah, well, it it grew out of um, the remnants of the um, the SAD, the the Socialist Unity Party of of, of East Germany, exactly. Um, and uh, as I say, in, in Germany, uh, you know, Die Linke, the left, and the AfD. They're basically the two ends of the horseshoe that meet in the same, same very undemocratic, dangerous place. Um, so it's no surprise that both the left-wing radicals and the right-wing radicals in Germany are big Russia supporters. We see this dynamic uh, not just in Germany, but all across uh, the Western world. I mean, there's good news and bad news with that. You know, the, the good news is it's not just a German problem, you know, where it's, we're not the only ones dealing with this. Um, the bad news is um, is that... Those narratives, the Russian propaganda uh, in Germany, it lands on particularly fertile ground against the backdrop of the legacy of World War II and a general ignorance within the population that the Soviet Union was much more than just Russia. You know, because of the, the guilt of, of Germany and German aggression in World War II, you've got, you know, two, three generations of Germans who grew up with this notion of because we killed so many Russians in the war, we must never uh, be mean to Russia. And, and that is a sort of facile, simplistic way of, put, of uh, explaining it. But it's, the problem is, as you well know, and everyone in this country uh, here in Ukraine knows, it wasn't just Russians. The Soviet Union, I mean, millions of Ukrainians were killed in that number of Soviet civilian uh, and, and soldier uh, victims of, of the Nazis. Um, and so like, like uh, so much um, of the Soviet oppression, um, Ukrainian identity, history, um, and indeed casualty numbers simply erased from, from the memory banks. And a lot of Germans just uh, didn't know and just badly educated, badly informed about the history of the Soviet Union and the distinctions between all the different ethnic um, and uh, national groups that, that were oppressed and, well, well uh, oppressed and annexed into the Soviet Union. Um, and so now, uh, though the good news is, uh, if there's one indirect positive um, outcome that, that has come since the full-scale invasion is that a lot more Germans are, are learning this history and uh, realizing uh, how much they didn't know, they didn't know. It's small comfort, it's too little, too late, but it's important, it's a process. And also, again, it's not just a German problem. I, I think this was quite common all across Western Europe um, and indeed in, in North America as well. Let's move from Western Europe, from Germany, to more recent history, but yet something that may be hanging over the United States' decision-making policy. You worked in Afghanistan. The Biden administration oversaw the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Walk us through what that withdrawal then in 2020 may mean for the full-scale invasion that took place in 2022 and is now in its 17th month. Well, this brings us back to... Yeah, Sorry, I think that was 2021. I want to correct myself on yeah, the withdrawal. It's okay. We, we've all lost uh, our sense of time since February 2022. Uh, yes, the withdrawal was in 2021, um, so we're just coming up on two years now. Like, it's, Well, this brings us back to that word, weakness. 
Putin watched as 20 years and trillions of dollars worth of NATO investment uh, in money, weapons, and soldiers' lives watched it fall apart within weeks. To the Taliban, not a good look, to put it very mildly. I, I, won't, I won't get into uh, the, the weeds of the evacuation disaster and just the complete and, and utter clusterfuck, if I'm allowed to call it that. Um, In democracy, <laughs> you have free speech. Let's just look at it from the eyes of, of Moscow and Beijing. This, this was a massive sign of weakness, lack of resolve, lack of seriousness, fortunately. Was, was misinterpreted as a green light to Russia to invade Ukraine. They, they miscalculated. They thought, oh, uh, NATO's in a mess. NATO can't even protect Kabul airport. Um, they, they let 20 years and, and trillions just be, be wasted. Then they certainly won't be able to stop us. And this, the, the good news is, obviously, that uh, he was wrong. Um, but the bad news is, I think, from, from the, the view from China, is still unflattering uh, to see how slowly and how long it took uh, for NATO to, to mobilize to support Ukraine. Um, if we had listened... If we had listened to the Ukrainians and to other Central and Eastern European and uh, Baltic states, they were they were warning us uh, for years. And then, especially in, in the months leading up to the full-scale invasion, you know, th there were a number of steps that could have been taken to deter Russia from actually invading, and and that didn't happen. So, by by the sheer virtue of allowing allowing Russia to invade and then not imposing, for example, a no-fly zone um, in, in the their early weeks of the invasion, um, the slow mobilization of, of heavy weapons. Basically, it, it became clear that NATO had collectively swallowed a lot of Russian propaganda about, about Ukrainian capacity, will to fight, and ability to fight. And so, you know, this squared against the disaster um, of the Afghan withdrawal. I don't, I don't see that it's, uh, you know, the, the jury is still out and it will hinge on how quickly we can now, once again, mobilize the long-range missiles, uh, the air support, the jets that Ukraine needs to end this war. Because, I mean, I, I think in certain circles in Washington, there's a sense that, that this is already a success for Ukraine and, and for NATO because Russia has been so deeply weakened by is this, this war. Is this war support by NATO more about neutering Russia or actually liberating Ukraine? I'm getting more and more the sense that it's about uh, worrying about China. Okay. So it's become evident that giving Russia a soft landing in its failure is more important to Washington than ending this war quickly. 
that it's a hard reality because especially for, for folks here, every day this war goes on is more of Ukraine losing its best, its brightest. The human cost is immeasurable and awful. But American foreign policy has never and will never be dictated by humanitarian concerns. That's just a reality. If, if genocide uh, were, if, if stopping genocide were top motivating factor in US foreign policy, uh, the last century would have looked very different than it did. And, uh, you know, Samantha Power wrote an entire book on this issue. Uh, so I, I don't need to go into it. Uh, it. This has never been a policy of the United States uh, to, to go forth and end genocides, and it certainly is also not going to be the policy here. So my concern is that uh, there's actually been a strategic uh, misunderstanding of the signal being sent to China. If, there were, if, if Washington is worried, and of course Berlin also uh, following behind, but Washington's worried that if Russia loses too hard and falls apart, that then they'll fall into China's arms and uh, China's regional and global uh, position will be strengthened and that they'll be emboldened to further aggression. Uh, I, I think they've got it backwards, quite frankly. China needs to see Russia lose hard to be deterred from invading Taiwan. China also needs to see NATO stepping up and making Russia lose as quickly as possible. They need to see NATO stand up and act consistently, coherently, quickly, and in a unified manner as a deterrent factor. But watching us hem and haw and delay and try to accommodate the Russian regime is, if anything, just emboldening. Speaking of accommodating, I'm going to come up with something that's going to seem a little bit controversial, but here at Zero Line in Resolute Square, we're in a war zone. We, we are in a country at war, and sometimes the hard questions have to be asked. President Zelensky has been accused by those on Capitol Hill of being accommodating to the People's Republic of China. And is this a fair criticism of President Zelensky? And if so, why has he not taken a stronger stance with China vis-a-vis -vis Russia? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. But uh, I think the, the answer in the short form is he doesn't really have a choice. It doesn't make sense for him to burn bridges to Beijing. Beijing has a lot of leverage over Russia. And it makes no sense strategically, economically, or diplomatically to piss them off, to put it bluntly. You know, you know sometimes you have to dance with the devil. Well, he's not even dancing with the devil. He's just maintaining functional diplomatic relations with the devil. So um, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about that. I mean, he's, he's doing his job. China's stance, for example, on uh, making a very clear stance on their opposition to potential Russian nuclear weapons views. You know, this, that matters. That's a good thing. You know, in Germany and France also contributed to that pressure. You know, the United States, of course, very much so. It's good to have Chinese opposition on those points. 
again, you know, China is able to to play this game on multiple levels. Everyone involved in this conflict has some sort of dependency on China. So they are able and 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 do use their leverage against everyone. It's a win-win-win for them. And this is part of why it is so important and so crucial for NATO to show strength. China is an old-school imperial dictatorship in a way that is much more similar to, uh, to Russia um, than to, to any, any um, model of government uh, and economy that, that we, we know in the Western world. Once again, you know, the, the misunderstanding, the misinterpretations, uh, the wishful thinking and, and self-deluding thinking about the Russians um, that we've seen over the last 20 years, uh, 25 years, pales in comparison to how badly we are going to get China wrong, where we're on thin ice. We didn't listen to Russia when they told us what they were about, when they showed us who they are, and we certainly haven't been listening to China so, you know, whether with Hong Kong, with Xinjiang, with the uh, South China Sea, the aggression uh, and increasingly brazen domestic and international policies of the CCP, um, you know, it's not a perfect parallel, but, you know, you can compare it to how Russia pushed borders, uh, pushed limits, I should say, uh, over the last 20 plus years with Chechnya, Georgia. Crimea, Donbass, Syria, China. Wagner in the Sahel. We let, every time they pushed for an inch, we let them. And so then they took a meter. And um, the Chinese were watching that very closely. And they also saw, we can take Hong Kong. We can uh, commit acts of genocide and uh, have modern day concentration camps in Xinjiang against the Uyghur people. We can increase the police state. We can literally put illegal police stations uh, of our of our own our own agents uh, in in western democracies we can disrupt their elections we can bribe politicians uh we can infiltrate their technology institutions and military r&d and the west lets us do it so so we've been making a lot of the same mistakes with china that we made with russia our economies are much more dependent on china across multiple levels than, than our dependencies on, on, on Russian energy were even. To mess up on China is going to be even more damaging than messing up on Russia has proven to be. And this brings us back to the point in the, the long-term strategic scope of this war. Every day being fought here is about Ukrainian lives and freedom, but not only. It's also about so much more. We are in this war determining the trajectory of this century in the fight between democracy and autocracy. We're about to end your time on the zero line. However, let's talk about a wild card situation. And I'm going to ask for a one minute answer on this. Uh, Donald J. Trump I know it's <laughs> is pulling neck and neck with President Biden. It's August 2nd. We're doing this interview uh, less than 24 hours ago. Donald Trump was indicted on more charges, J6. Ultimately, I don't want to get into the legal ease of it. What happens on January 20th, 2025 to foreign policy if Donald Trump is the president of the United States for his second term? 
She's literally speechless right now. I want the audience to understand that. I want this pause to stay in here well, because yeah. it's... Uh, yes, I'm, I have a, a large smile, pained smile on my face as I consider what that would mean. Uh, it would not be good, sir. That's a understatement of the decade. Trump's foreign policy was already in his first term disastrous. He cannot be allowed to have a second term. He's not a stable personality psychologically. I mean, that's, that's evident. And if he gets a second term, it'll be all about revenge. Anybody who slighted him uh, actually or just in his perception will be on his shit list. And um, that basically includes uh, more than half of the United States and also, you know, allies and adversaries alike. And he's made very clear he admires dictators. He admires the strong men, quote unquote, and has nothing but disdain for Democrats. He is an authoritarian by nature. He, is, he does not believe in, respect, or uphold uh, the institutions uh, or principles of democracy. So to have an American president who is undemocratic, who openly embraces the worst dictators on the planet and attacks and maligns democratic allies would be a recipe for disaster. Uh, that being said, the United States is not the only democracy on the planet. Um, Europe, I think, has gotten the message that... Um, uh, that this can happen, and uh, I'm not in the business of crystal balls, but I will just express my hope that the Republican Party, because it's, it's on them, the Republican Party needs to ensure that Donald Trump is not the Republican candidate for president. Full stop. It's on them. They... They messed up last time, they underestimated the threat, but now they know. And so if there is a single uh, patriotic Democratic American left in the Republican Party, then they need to ensure that that doomsday scenario uh, that led me to my, my pained, <laughs> smiling silence uh, doesn't happen. Jessica Berlin, thank you for joining us on The Zero Line. For those listening, ResoluteSquare.com is the place to go to follow up on all the themes that Jessica touched on and that we touch on every week. The zero line in the fight for democracy, liberty, and liberation of all people across the globe is not just based here in Ukraine, but it truly is an international undertaking. And because of this, we ask you to make certain to tune into all of our shows and read all of the columns printed weekly at ResoluteSquare.com. This is Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, inviting you to join me next week at The Zero Line. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And The Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to The Zero Line wherever you podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at the Zero Line.